0: Hello and welcome to Chapel Chats. I am your host and chaplain, the Reverend Dr. Hannah Adams Ingram. Today I'm excited to share with you a conversation between new Chapel Chats producer Tabby Fitzgerald and Dr. Casey Hayes. Dr. Hayes is associate professor and the A.J. Thurston Chair of Music at Franklin College. Dr. Hayes was awarded the Fulbright-Botsipper Visiting Professor of Austrian-American Studies Award and recently returned from six months in Vienna. In this conversation, Tabby asks about his research, his time in a different country during a pandemic, and how the experience has affected his life and teaching. As a chaplain, I hear from students who are uncertain about their futures, about what they want to do when they leave college. What I love about this conversation with Dr. Hayes is the element of surprise and adventure he continues to cultivate in his life. He is following where passion, call, and conviction lead. And he's an inspiration to us all. Let us listen together now. Wherever you are on life's journey, you are welcome in our Chapel Chats.
1: All right, so thank you again for agreeing to come on the Chapel Chats podcast. Um, I just wanted to talk about uh, the project that you were working on this past year mm-hmm. um, and being a Fulbright Scholar. Um, so if you could just tell me a little bit about your trip.
2: Sure. Uh, so when you're a Fulbright Scholar, what you do is you have to, it's a it's a government apply research grant that there are certain awards for each country. And the grant that, the award that I won was called the Botsdiber. So it focuses in on the unique relationship between Austria and the United States. And my project focused in on um, LGBTQI plus cabaret performers from the Weimar German Republic um, that had to flee to Vienna and then upon the Anschluss in uh, March of 38 had to then relocate to the United States. Or in the case of my focus person whose name was paulo Montes, he was hunted down and and killed in 1940. Mm -hmm. so it's a lot of research
1: yes uh so how did you come up with the idea for this Mm -hmm. research project
2: well i i have a book that comes out in january on holocaust remembrance day on a cabaret performer from berlin who although not gay or lesbian uh, was killed because he was jewish and in the research on Vili Rosen, the subject of this forthcoming book, I came across uh, Paulo Montes and him being a very open, openly gay, rather flamboyant person. Uh, during a, a time, Weimar Germany was very funky. It was, um, the government had, you know, Weimar happens right after World War One when the German government has their hands full with so many things that they just set, issues that surrounded the LGBT community, then they just set it aside. They had too many things to worry about. So you have this lovely flowering of culture during this, this brief period of about 20 years, um, if even. And Omontis was a very unique personality that everybody knew that he was homosexual. He didn't try to play it down, yet he never really talked much about it. Um, the only issue was is that Goebbels, the minister of, of culture uh, for the Third Reich, had it out for him. So the moment the the Nazis came, National Socialists came into power, then they wanted to get him, and he fled to Vienna, and they tracked him down in Vienna and then ultimately outside of Prague where he – and then he was arrested, and he died in Sachsenhausen. So it's kind of – research is one of those areas where you don't – ever really stop researching everything you dig up leads you to something else and so even though billy rosen was my primary focus and of my book which comes out my fulbright came out of one person that i found while researching my book
1: Mm -hmm. and what does it mean to you to be a fulbright scholarship recipient oh
2: it's one of the greatest honors of, of of my life you know it's um there are very, there are not very many of us, um, particularly when you look at a country like Austria, which is a very um, it, it's kind of a prize uh, country. Um, a lot of people want to want to get a Fulbright to Austria, and they they want to have that experience in Vienna, um, one of the greatest cities of of education and culture in the Western world. So I, I felt very fortunate. Um, I still do, um, and. I'm not the same person that I was when I left. And I think that's ultimately what the goal of Fulbright is supposed to be. That not only do you have this intense academic experience as well as I, I taught at the University of Vienna, but you, your eyes are opened. And when you spend six months in any place that's not your home country, you learn to look at things through a different lens and so with that i i think it's a gift that i was able to do it and bring back that sense of uh, wonder um, to our students
1: Uh, can you talk a little bit more about some of the personal changes that affected you from the time before you left to where you are now
2: yeah, I, I like to think that even though I, I, I'm a world traveler, I've been all over the world. I, I'm goodness. I, it's different traveling than it is living in a place. And when you're anywhere for six months, you start to see things that you took for granted completely differently. It's almost like what COVID has done, I think, to our, all of Western society, is kind of made us reevaluate our human connections. And that when 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 the you know when the chips are called in, you want to have the people around you that you love, and you want to be in a place that that treats you well and is respectful of you, and you're surrounded with dear friends. And I, I think that's where um, I was able to see that you can have that somewhere else other than your home. And have deep human connections with um, people that really you just you just met, but they are in such sync with what your life's work is, what your research is. There, you you start to develop a sense of community amongst researchers. Where you know if we were if we were at a tier one research institution like in, like an IU or University of Michigan or Ohio State. It would be different. You're, you have a, a strong sense of maybe two or three or four people that are researching in the same area. And um, a small liberal arts school, all of us professors, we research such vastly different areas that there's very little connectivity to that research and building a sense of community amongst researchers. And I hope that's, that's kind of clear. And to me, as someone who values researching as equally as much as I do teaching, um, that was an important piece of my life that I didn't realize I was even missing until I was placed in it. So that really ultimately completely um, kind of shifted the paradigm of where I'm looking at the next part of my life to be. You know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, Oh, that old. But I'm certainly not young, and I st- certainly have another phase to my life once I retire. And I think that that's a place that it could certainly be.
1: Um, and then what have you brought back that's going to help you with your teaching and interacting with students, something that you're hoping that they might get out of your trip that you can give them?
2: Well, other than, you know, my intent is to present all of my... My research and, and at an academic forum in March, um, I, I go back to Vienna to wrap up uh, the uh, to wrap up this piece and start my next piece, and then with my book coming out in January, then present it all within the same presentation. As far as my experience, but what I like to bring to the classroom is this concept of constantly reminding students that even though their world might be right here on campus or it might be in their homes, we constantly have to look outside of ourselves. We're we're so locked in to what's immediately in front of us that sometimes we're hesitant or maybe we just don't know that we should be stepping outside and looking at ourselves in a different way. And understanding that those of us who are researching, we are of a certain age. And I would love nothing more than for my students to develop a love of research, a love of finding that passion, that, that one thing that just makes a huge difference, that, that makes your life. And no matter what voice is in your head telling you not to do it, do it. And don't let anyone say, you can't do that. That's your passion. You, we, Who wants to go through the next 30 years at a job that you don't love? And we have those discussions in advising meetings and informally after and before classes with students. But I think as, as a school community, we really need to do our students the favor of going, what is your passion? What are you passionate about? That's where you need to go. You'll figure it out. And we'll be here as a school community to help you figure that out. But for crying out loud, whatever it is you want to do, find your passion and run with it. And that's what I would hope that students would could take away from any conversation I have with them. Because this was really kind of, even though it was a deliberate attempt— I wanted this Fulbright and I applied for it and I worked for it and I, I I worked for a year to get this. I had no idea that it would ignite an entirely new passion. And I only wish it could have happened 30 years ago.
1: Mm-hmm. Um so what was the process like applying for the Fulbright scholarship and the things that the steps that you had to take to be able to get it?
2: it's um it's an interesting process because you can't apply for it unless you have another fulbright scholar write a letter of recommendation for you so you have to find one to start with and there aren't very many so you have to do some digging we were very fortunate here for one semester we had a visiting professor in the english department um, Holly Baker, who's now up at Purdue, she came in in one semester, and I met her, and she talked to me about it, and she wrote my letter. And uh, Cal- Calista Bunchen, who just who just left us, was the one in the first place who said, "You know, you should apply for a Fulbright. Your research topics are so interesting." And it was not something I ever considered. So you get you go on the website, you see you have to have these letters from cur- from former Fulbrighters, and then you have to find a university that will write you a letter to say that they want you to teach there. That is a nightmare. You have to reach out to, to universities in other countries that that don't know you, and you don't know them, and all you can do is introduce yourself and say, this is what I'm researching, and this is what I'm going after, and they can say, yeah, we could see that you could teach here for a semester. Yeah, that'd be fine. And that was the hardest part. And then you have to draft a a five-page, very carefully worded proposal on what your research topic is gonna be, how it can affect our country, and in my case, Austria, and create course syllabi for courses that you could potentially teach at the school. The impact that it would have on me personally um, and then you send it off to government agencies and you have to – the first round is that you have to be – you have to pass the U.S. So the U.S. goes through thousands and thousands of these applications and then they select the ones that they like. And so we get a letter and I got my letter in – I believe it was October of 19 saying that I passed the United States then they send off all of the Fulbrights that they picked, their applications to all of the 140 countries that Fulbrights or exist. And then those, those countries will look at those applications and say, yeah, okay, we think this is a good one. Or else they'll send it back and say, no, this doesn't really match. In my case, not only did I have that, but my award is what, they called the Crown Jewel of Austria, the, the Batzdeber Award. So it also had to go through scrutiny from um, the Dietrich Batzdeber Foundation, which is outside of Philadelphia. So they had to approve it as well. So I had three levels of approval to go through just before I could I could be approved. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of intense. I worked on my proposal for about five months. Some days I would wake up and I would read it and I would just remove a word, the, and then I would leave it. Then I'd come back the next day and read it to spend another hour, and maybe I would adjust one little sentence. But everything has to be so carefully worded that the, an incorrectly placed word could make the difference whether your proposal is accepted or not. Mm-hmm.
1: And about how long were you working on the proposal and going through the different steps of being approved before you were officially accepted and knew that you were going to be able to go to Austria?
2: I was. I got final word in. <clears throat> it was right. It's in the, in December of <clears> twenty. <throat> no, December of nineteen. Um, yes. Um, that I got word that I had I had made all of I, that. I was it. I was the Botster Fulbright Scholar for twenty twenty one. Um. So I and I had started that process the spring before Mm -hmm. so you have to you have to sit do all of your all of your work and get all of your letters and everything and send it in oh no i'm i I add a year to that it was a year and a half because i had to have it in by september 15th of the year before and then it starts so it's a long process Mm -hmm. you know and it's so weird because covid and and has kind of messed up the semesters for, I think, a lot of us. And we kind of, there was a lost year there. So kind of getting getting that in tap, I found out before COVID that I was coming over here. So, and that was scary enough because as it got closer to the time, Austria wasn't letting Americans in and if America wasn't letting Europeans in. There was a travel nightmare that had to be worked out and we didn't i didn't get the final word that i was okay to go until thank the day before thanksgiving and i was supposed to leave on february 2nd so they ran it right up to the wire
1: and how did covid affect your trip what was that like to still be able to go to another country while covid and all of the uncertainty that came with that
2: well austria certainly handled covid much better than the u.s does and did Um, you know, you couldn't do anything the first three months. I literally wrote and researched all of the first three months, about 15 hours a day. That was all I did. Um, the weather was freezing. You couldn't do anything. We had, there's an 8 PM curfew in Vienna. So you didn't do anything. All you did was you researched and you wrote. So I got all of my writing done in those first three months. So that by the time it finally opened up in May, May nineteenth, all of my Fulbright work was done except my teaching. I taught every Wednesday at five o'clock. Um, so I, and I was vaccinated, so I could do any, I could pretty much do anything, but the Viennese do not tolerate people that are not vaccinated. Um, they couldn't get the vaccine in Vienna for the longest time. They wanted it badly. People wanted to be vaccinated. So the concept of not being vaccinated, they don't tolerate that. So you can't do anything indoors unless you are vaccinated. And, and people don't, they don't put up a fuss with it. It's like, okay, well get vaccinated and we can do this thing. And they're excellent on contact tracing. You have apps on your phone that you have to scan. Every time you sit down at any table, indoor or outdoor, you have to scan it and fill out your name, What table. It automatically knows what table you're at in case someone else, you know, the government has a very firm hand in everything health wise because it's a socialized medical system. And if someone were to um, come up COVID positive and they can trace it back to that restaurant and you were there, you would get an email saying someone there has done that please go to in my case, right around the corner to get tested. And testing is free. You would, I mean, everything is is pretty free. So it was, um, it's a very different situation. So when Vienna opened up, it was able to open up. You know, and they opened up mostly without masks. Most people, by the time I left in, at the end of July, most people who could be vaccinated be, um, were vaccinated. And... Um, so it's a very different. It's not a political thing, you know. It's a health thing, it, and it shouldn't be, in my opinion. It was. It's just a health thing.
1: Um, so when you first arrived there, and even when you came back to the U.S., did you experience any culture shocks?
2: Not when I went there, um, and that was largely because the city was so shut down. You there wasn't a whole lot of culture. <laughs> you know there wasn't. You you know you didn't see – you saw people on walks and stuff like that, but it was really no different. Um, the people that I knew, most all of them were the other Fulbrighters who spoke English, and they didn't speak German. So you were really pretty confined to American culture even when you were there. The culture shock came when I came back. I'm still not over it. There's are still residuals. So, um, yeah, I'm so there's there's culture shock <laughs>
1: <laughs> so what has that experience been like coming back to the u.s
2: Um, hard harder than i expected it to be um it, it's when you're in a city like vienna where every where you look is sheer beauty windowsills are beautiful and doorways and everything is beautiful i mean you always think you're going to turn the corner and you're going to go. Okay, I'm going to go into. This has got to be a shady neighborhood. Well, There are no shady neighborhoods. Everything is just beautiful and it's clean. Um, when you see, you're constantly surrounded by, by this visual beauty. It, it, it's shocking when that's taken away. I felt like for for six months I lived in a museum, and then I had I came home to my home which is my just, it's a, it's a beautiful home, but it's not a museum. Yeah. So it's, it's been difficult. And it's been very difficult coming back into a place where there's so much noise happening about vaccinations and politicizing it. When I just spent six months with people that literally would do anything they could to get vaccinated. They wanted that vaccine so badly, and the EU just messed it up. You know, Austria even bought a million doses of Sputnik vaccine from Russia and while it was being delivered the EU said, "No, it's not approved for EU. You can't use it." So they had to turn around and cancel the sale. And it was they they did anything. They made deals with Israel to get Johnson and Johnson. They they just could not get it. And so to come home and then know that here is a society that would have done anything for it and here it's a political statement it's really much less about health than it is about politics is if it, it's very hard to listen to that so what i think the biggest change is i watch very little news on tv anymore
1: mm-hmm. um, is there anything that you would hope our listeners uh get from our conversation or main thing you hope they would walk away with
2: um a sense of wonder that no matter how old you are you are you you're never too old to experience life-changing events and whatever you do do it passionately and deeply and don't go through life with blinders on look around and enjoy the beauty that surrounds us um i think those would be three big things i hope they would take
1: all right well thank you so much again for agreeing to come on our podcast
2: anytime it's it's been an absolute pleasure
0: beloveds thank you for joining us today we have other conversations and the works for future episodes if you have ideas of themes you'd like us to explore, or people you'd like us to chat with, send us an email at chapelchatspod at gmail.com, or just chat with Tabby or me. In the meantime, I pray that you keep your hearts and minds open to learning, curiosity, and adventure, wherever they may take you. Amen. This podcast is produced by Tabitha Fitzgerald and Colin Sanders. It is recorded in the Center for Technology Innovation. The music is High Ride by Blue Dot Session.